once again and welcome to the podcast, The 60-Year-Old Student. Hello and welcome back to my podcast where I'm going to talk about what it's like to be a student back at university, well I say back, I never went in the first place, but at university at the grand old age of 60. I've got no plan, I don't know where this journey's taking me, I'm just getting started. Well, I feel like I'm just getting started in life. It's been a wonderful, wonderful experience, life-transforming experience. I came here through some crazy journey of a major upheaval in life, but life is remarkable, as I've said before. This is where I am, I'm gonna face it, and I'm going to take the journey through to the end and see where we go from there. I want to move forward now because I'll talk very quickly now about two disciplines that you pick up and learn when you start learning again, when you go back to school. I took the good advice from the university to take a foundation year because I haven't been to school for over 40 years and they suggested that I learn how to learn again, which I was a little bit reluctant to do at first, but now I think it was such wise counselling and I'm so glad I listened to them. It would have been really tough to jump in to straight away doing research-based 2,000 word essays. The foundation course built me up to writing from 150 to 200 word to 300 to 500 word reflections, critical analysis on articles let's say and then the foundation year ended in a 2,000 word assignment. It was a very, it's very cleverly designed. It, It ramps you up nice and slowly and gently to get you ready for year one. I'm so glad I did it. And I've learned so much along the way. So I want to talk about two things which are very, very important in academia, um, which I learned in foundation. And I want to pass those on now. One is about uh, research, about creating a bibliography, or they call it referencing when you're writing a research essay. How important it is. I'll touch on a few styles of referencing, creating a bibliography. And of course, you couldn't talk about that without mentioning the dreaded plagiarism, which you must avoid at all costs. And referencing is the discipline that helps you avoid plagiarism and steer well clear of it because it could destroy your academic career. And the other discipline which they encourage positively is called reflection, personal reflection, writing about how you feel as you're learning, what you've learned, why that learning has affected you maybe in a way and what you've learned from it. And as time goes on, you keep reflecting and you can look back at the end of your year to, to at the person who you are and compare it against the person that you were when you first walked through the gate. And boy, you'd be amazed at the difference. Happily, I can guarantee you, amazed, positively amazed at the difference. The potential for how far you can come in just one year um, by going back to school. And the way I want to do this is that I've um, written uh, two pieces, one on referencing and one on reflection. And so I'd like to read them out, but I'll try to read them out in not too formal a way. Doing it this way just helps me gather all my thoughts together on a piece of paper, as it were. And so just by by, by reading it, it's easier for me at this stage doing this podcast as uh, such a newbie and a novice, because I sometimes find that my thinking isn't as free as it is when I'm talking to people in a more relaxed situation. And this may come over time, but um, as a newbie, it is a little bit of a struggle. I'm not going to lie. And so writing these things down as a little formal piece and then reading it, hopefully in as leisurely a manner as I can, um, is best for me. So, referencing. I view referencing as a sacrosanct convention in academic writing. It basically subscribes to 
the crediting of other people's work used when validating an argument that's being posited. By referencing, confidence in the author is given to the reader by showing the extent of the research undertaken, and it also demonstrates participation in a scholarly community and develops one's academic integrity. There's a website called Business Balls, and um, they summarised it in a very pithy sentence. Back in, 2000, in, a, in, a, in an article in 2020, it said, you should reference anything that is not an independent thought. And I like that. Even if you don't quote somebody word by word, if you're using somebody's phraseology or somebody's idea and you're writing it in your own words, you must credit absolutely and reference absolutely everything. It's only fair. And by properly crediting every piece of information used to enhance an expression of ideas on a topic, a writer displays a confident familiarity with that subject. And this allows others to peer review the work, verify and build upon the research, granting it credibility in the cumulative growth of knowledge in that subject, which academia is all about. The incremental cumulative growth in any discipline. An argument or an idea in academic writing must be supported with evidence and in order for a reader to appraise the integrity of that evidence it is necessary uh, for them to know the source and they can only get the source through referencing in a proper big bibliography. There are various recognised styles of referencing and these differ in relation to the subject discipline. For example, theology uses the Harvard style of referencing which is known as in-text referencing. I started off having a problem with that because you're reading a sentence and suddenly you've got to break the sentence to read the author, the date and the page number and then you get back into the flow of the writing and I found it was a little disruptive. Um, unlike let's say history which adopts a Chicago method which uses footnotes so you're, you're reading along and you see a little number and you can reference down to the bottom of the page and read the footnotes relating to that number which I personally find a little more relaxing. But in employing the Harvard Convention, let's say, I'm going to talk about that because that's what I'm studying. Um, uh, whether you're directly quoting or paraphrasing another work, an in-text citation must be presented. So to give an example, let's say I'm contrasting the argument for atheism between a traditionalist, uh, a great intellect like Bertrand Russell, and maybe a new atheist dialogue, which in my opinion is probably uh, not so profound and so I may, I may make a conclusion that um, New Atheism does not display a skillful understanding of theology, let's say, or a profound understanding of theology. So therefore, such exertions of people like Dawkins are little more than, let's say, an exercise in knocking down a not very impressive straw god. Okay, so, but that sentence, an exercise in knocking down a not very impressive straw god, wasn't mine. Um, I read it in another book by a fellow called Robert Barron. And so in this example, I must offer an in-text uh, citation, uh, giving the author's surname, the date of publication of the book and the page from where the quote was taken. So the, the sentence will read, an exercise in knocking down a not very impressive straw god, bracket, Barron, comma, 2015, comma, page 20, close bracket. So it's quite a thing. It's quite a chunky little disruption in the middle of a sentence that could be free-flowing, but in this instance, it could be the end of the sentence, which may not be so disruptive. So in that example, the in-text citation is offered. And then further to this, at the very end of the assignment, I have to write a bibliography, a list in alphabetical order of um, all the material used throughout the whole essay. And so the example I would give in the bibliography at the end of my essay, and the example I've given, would have to be written with surname, comma, 
initial of first name, date, the book which it was taken from, the location of the publisher and the name of the publisher. So in this case, for example, it would be Baron, comma, R, full stop, 2015 in brackets, Exploring Catholic Theology, title of the book, Grand Rapids, the place where the publisher exists, Baker Academic, there being the name of the publishing company. So details of author, title of the book, date of publication, name and location of the publisher. And from that, the reader can judge its authority. And by authority, I guess I mean that really you should only use sources that have been peer-reviewed. Because, as we all know, out on the internet and in the world, there are a lot of people's opinions, but uh, they count for nothing unless they have been peer-reviewed, especially in the academic world. Now, aside from books and journals, sources can be as diverse as web pages and television or radio programs, and each source has a unique way of being cited. And the exacting details of these international standards can be found in established resources, such as um, a website, let's say, for an example, called Cite Them Right Online. There are many others, but this is the one I use all the time. It's published by Macmillan Publishing, and it'll give you a breakdown of how you cite every source. Referencing gives the reader an opportunity to verify and further scrutinise source material in order to give credence to the argument. For example, an author would gain more respect using peer-reviewed material, what I've just mentioned before, than from little-known internet sources bearing no supporting evidence. With the plethora of unregulated platforms on the internet and abounding conspiracy theories, which amount to little more than idle pub chat, um, sober referencing is of paramount importance. Referencing can also aid in establishing an authorial voice, let's say. Um, a, a writer might wish to bring experience and, well, bring their life experience and maybe their own personality into the tone of their work and express a sentiment in maybe a more emotionally charged way using, for example, poetry. As an example, I might uh, use an argument um, that I used once in an essay about the, the fact that affluent people may be happier but generally lack empathy for those who are less fortunate. Right, that could be a little bit of a polemic statement, but I probably need to back that up with some research. But that's the statement. Affluent people may be happier, but they generally lack empathy for those who are less fortunate. And I could say it like that. There's nothing wrong with that. Or, to inject a little more character, I could quote, as I did from William Blake's uh, poem, The Four Zoas, because um, I wanted to create a more powerful effect. I wanted it to be a bit more punchy. And so I used the line, it is an easy thing to rejoice in the tents of prosperity. Again, the in-text citation would be offered and it, at the end of the quote and then represented in the bibliographic uh, entry as Blake, comma, W, full stop, brackets 1977, because that's the book that I sourced it from, um, which was called The Complete Poems, second edition, edited by A. Ostriker, uh, London Penguin. Right, which just gives the um, name of the poet, the date of the book, the title, the editor, who's very important, who curated this particular collection of poems for this book, and obviously London Penguin. So enhancing a work with extracts from poetry, fiction or music may portray a more enlightened or well-read image of the author, which is something I wanted to do in that particular instance. Now this consequently raises the ugly spectre of plagiarism. Despite the uh, reasons given thus far for the importance of referencing, for you to grow in the world of academia as a serious writer, um, another hallowed area of concern is respect of copyright or intellectual property. To use another person's work by quoting directly or paraphrasing them without due reference is called plagiarism. It's very serious it's, it, and it's rightly seen 
as a serious and largely unforgivable offence with serious consequences to an academic career. I think you're kind of forgiven once, you're pulled up very, very seriously if you do it twice and uh, you're kind of kicked out or not taken seriously at all from then on if you do it if you're caught doing it three times let's say but you've got to have a really really good excuse it not only forfeits the spirit of uh, collegiate respect but it also is little more than theft uh, in a scholarly community an author would be very quickly and laughingly exposed as a fraud if attempting to pass off the above quote you know the, the, the quote from Blake that I used and rightly so but despite that obvious example, uh, to use another person's research in any form or an idea or an expression from another person who may not be so well known is just unfair. And ultimately, it wouldn't add to the incremental growth in human understanding of a subject which academia should hold as its primary objective. It may attain a fleeting moment of glory, but would soon render the perpetrator ultimately unfit for academic life. So the due diligence of referencing in academia may not hold the promise of excitement in scholarly life, but compliance with the forensic execution of its rules will profitably and satisfactorily complete any piece of work that's ultimately worthy of respect. So those are my thoughts on referencing. And now I want to touch on reflective writing. So what is reflective writing and reflective practice? We do not learn from experience, we learn from reflecting on experience. That's a quote which may be wrongly attributed to the American philosopher and educational reformer John Dewey, but it does however capture the essence of reflective practice. Reflecting is something we all do subconsciously, but with awareness and application it become a powerful tool in gaining business or academic success and achieving a better quality of life. So how can we define this process? Well, it's perfectly natural to go over something in our minds, to process events, to put them in some kind of order, to consider and explore emotions that may have derived from an event, and to arrive at conclusions and formulate strategies for moving forward. It's part of being human. So we could define reflective practice as an ability to think about our actions or decisions in a way that helps us constantly learn and improve. And reflective writing can be defined as an analytical skill which we can use as a tool to develop this ability. To grow is to learn from mistakes and this can only be achieved through reflecting on events and affecting change. Imagine having the opportunity to jump into a time machine and go back to relive certain moments in life, thinking how with a second chance we would do things differently. Well, reflecting or reflection allows us to do that in a way to move forward with a more positive confidence. Writing reflectively is a practical way of helping us develop this skill. And there are several key points that can guide us in its practice. Writing can be in a style that is private, i.e. Uh, a journal or a diary, or public, maybe an opinion piece, something like that. And it's often best done in the first person. So it's retrospective or in hindsight. It doesn't require formal academic style, but should be a free flowing stream of thought intuitive and yet easy to follow with a clear structure. It's about documenting emotions whilst in the moment. Though the flow of thought should look backwards on past reflections in order that you can plan forwards for future circumstances. There should be a freedom of expression that allows focusing on personal attributes and weaknesses but which demands honesty of feeling and the courage to admit to and face change as a result or else the whole process is, is meaningless. 
Donald Alan Schon, um, a philosopher who developed the concept, advocated two types of reflective practice. The first one was reflection in action, as something happens in the present to determine how to act immediately. And the second one is reflection on action, which considers past events and how to act in the future. And the whole process should be like climbing a spiral staircase in that it is a constantly increasing and ongoing process and not just sort of some one-off event. There are various theories and models of reflection which have been developed uh, for teaching this discipline and another professor, Graham Gibbs, published a reflective cycle in his 1998 book Learning by Doing. Um, David A. Kolb published his experiential learning theory in 1984. Both of these and other theories that are out there may differ slightly in their nuances, but all generally prescribe to an investigative thought process around experiential learning. And reflective practice ultimately, and writing, is a natural process, but it can be developed and honed into a skill. And it is a skill which will not only help improve academic and business performance, but also help individual growth, which will increase confidence and improve the quality of life for ourselves and for those around us. Okay, well, those are my thoughts for today. But I hope you've got a little something from this week's podcast. And don't forget, do reach out to me if you're going through a similar experience. If you'd like some advice on the experience you're going through or the decisions you're making from my experience of uh, being into the process already, or if you just want to reach out and say hello, I like your podcast tell me anything. Uh, be nice to hear from you. So until next week, don't forget, it's no sin being 60. In fact, I'm just getting started. Yeah.